Let's turn in the scriptures to James chapter 1. I'm taking a one-week break from our series in the Minor Prophets to focus our attention on a statement of scripture that has gripped me, that has fed me, that has thrilled me in this past year probably more than any other statement of scripture. And a few months ago as I was planning the preaching schedule, I just thought, I really want to return our church to this. Some of us experienced it on a Wednesday night a few months ago, but uh, I want our whole church to experience it. Less than two weeks ago, we experienced the winter solstice. That's the shortest day of the year. That means that winter is already two weeks in the rear view. Yes! (laughs) On that day, winter solstice, we experience approximately nine hours in a day of light, of sunlight, and 15 hours of darkness. From that point, every day, we gain now about two minutes of light a day until the spring equinox Equinox basically means equal, where there's 12 hours of sunlight and 12 hours of darkness. And then it moves all the way into the middle of June, where we experience the first day of summer, summer solstice. And it's the longest day of the year. And it's exactly opposite, winter solstice, and we experience about 15 hours of sunlight and 9 hours of darkness. It's absolutely incredible. It's remarkable that even though the sunrise and sunset is so predictable, so predictable, you can go back and look at what time sunrise was 2,000 years ago, and you can anticipate what it'll be 2,000 years from now. Even though sunrise and sunset are so predictable and rhythmic, our experience of them on earth is constantly changing. Every day, the amount of sunlight we experience is never the same. And this is a fact that humans have known about since the beginning of time, since God's creation in Genesis 1 of sun, moon, and stars, where he said, I have given stars and these things, these bodies in the heavens, to give light on the earth and also to mark seasons and days and years. As constant as the sunlight is, it's actually constantly changing in our experience of it it's constantly shifting and James is going to pick up on that in James 1:17, where I've asked you to turn but let me just thread the needle a little bit more who's James what is this letter we've just opened to James was the younger half-brother of Jesus he was one of Joseph and Mary's sons after they got married after Jesus was miraculously born James didn't become a follower of his older half-brother until after he witnessed Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And within a few years, James was actually serving as one of the pastors of the massive congregation that was amassing there in Jerusalem. He eventually became the lead pastor over that congregation. He was the lead pastor by the time of Acts 15. But it wasn't long before persecution fell. Both Religious and political persecution forced thousands of Christians out of Jerusalem into surrounding territories, and they lived as refugees. 
It was actually about 15 years after Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven that James penned this letter to the dispersed Christians outside of Jerusalem, Christians that he had pastored, Christians who were now poor, living as refugees in surrounding territories. They had lost their sense of security. Their dignity had been taken from them. Their familiar community had shunned them, and they had lost most of their belongings, maybe everything except what they could carry on their backs. And yet, shockingly, throughout this letter, James keeps saying, be happy. He speaks to them very bluntly, very directly, and he says things like, be happy that God's in control of all your circumstances. He says, be happy that God is definitely going to give you the wisdom for the moment. He's going to give you the strength to love people, even though you feel like you're at your weakest. And he says, be happy that no one, no one can take away your worth before God or your promised inheritance from God. Keep rejoicing, keep rejoicing. It's one of the themes of his letter. It's incredible that he's speaking so directly and he's challenging these suffering believers. James 1, 17 and 18 is what we're going to read. And it's here that he counsels these suffering believers who are tempted to get bitter at God. They're tempted to think, God, you've been cruel to me. He challenges them to consider what God is like. And this is what I want us to do at the beginning of the year. I want us to consider what God is like. No matter where we are now, no matter where we may be tomorrow, we need to consider what God is like. And it's great for us to hear it from Pastor James, who knew suffering and who is writing to people who knew suffering. He urges us to remember that God is only good. He's always good. James 1, 17 and 18. James writes to these suffering believers, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He caused us to be born by the word of truth. That's a reference to the gospel message. So that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Based on the way that James describes God in these two precious sentences, I would say that every Christian, no matter what we're going through, no matter what difficulty we're enduring at the moment, we should look at the lights, at the stars, and we should think the universe has an almighty creator who's sovereign over all. He's unchanging in pure goodness. He's utterly beyond my ability to comprehend. And he's my father through the gospel. James is challenging us, no matter what we are suffering or what we will suffer, to always look at the lights in the sky and think, the universe has an almighty creator who's sovereign over all. He's pure, completely pure in his goodness and unchanging in that reality. He's utterly beyond my ability to comprehend. And he's my father through the gospel. That's what James is teaching us here when he refers to God as the father of lights. Of course, the lights to which James is referring are clearly the sun, moon, and stars mentioned in Genesis 1. And for Christians, 
looking at the sun, moon, and stars should teach us about God and remind us about God. Looking at the sun, moon, and stars should remind us about God in at least six different ways. I'm going to work through each relatively quickly. The sun, moon, and stars should remind us of God's mighty power as creator. He made the universe. When James refers to our God as the father of lights, he's saying he's the one who made them. He's the one who made the sun, moon, and stars. They were his idea. The sun, moon, and stars were God's design. They were God's handiwork. Everything in the sky is declaring God's marvelous craftsmanship, the psalmist said. Psalm 33.6 says that God made everything in the skies by his word. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. Now, this is incredible. Because from what we know now, our sun is just an average star. Did you know that? Our sun is just average. It's just average. (laughs) Even though a million Earths could fit inside it. Some stars are actually a thousand times larger than our sun. And our sun is one of at least a hundred billion stars in our galaxy. And scientists now estimate that there could be two trillion galaxies. So simply put, when you look at the innumerable lights in the sky, you should think God created that. There is a father over those lights. And he is greater in immensity than I can imagine. The creator of those stars must be great. You should feel it to the core of your being. The sun, moon, and stars should remind us of God's mighty power as creator. And let me suggest that uh, the Big Bang Theory, whether you accept it or not, offers no comment on origins. It doesn't explain where primordial elements came from or why they exploded as space. Further, even though the theory is dominant in contemporary astronomy, it is quite poor in explaining why matter in the universe is found, as some scientists point out, in clumps of galaxies and clusters of galaxies rather than spread out uniformly. Makes no sense. If you're going on Big Bang cosmology. God's mighty power as creator is seen in the lights. Secondly, God's sovereignty. Every time we look at the sun, moon, and stars, we should be reminded of God's sovereignty. The sun, moon, and stars are far above us. Just how far? Well, if you drove at a constant rate of 60 miles an hour, and you never stopped to sleep, and you just started on your journey right now in your car, it would take you to the middle of June to get to the moon. How long would it take you to get to the sun? You'd get there in 176 years. The next nearest star in our galaxy, Proxima Centauri, at a rate of 60 miles per hour, take you 47 million years to get to it. That's the next nearest star. 
When James describes God's goodness, he says it's coming down from above. And we have some kind of idea of just how far above those lights are. And James is stressing God's aboveness. What's coming down to us from God, the Father of lights. He's stressing his aboveness. We might say his sovereignty. God is above the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. Everything that happens in every square inch of this universe, every microsecond of every day of every year, God's in control of it. He is the Father of lights under whom everything in the universe takes place, under whose sovereignty everything unfolds. We should be reminded of this every time we look up at the lights. Thirdly, we should be reminded of God's pure goodness. James, when he says God is the Father of lights, he's compelling us to think of God's essential nature as light, isn't he? That God is pure, radiant, beautiful goodness, unadulterated goodness. He is light. The one who created the lights dwells in unapproachable light. That's what Paul reveals in 1 Timothy 6. John says it as clearly as any. He says, God himself is light, and in him is not a shred of darkness, not an ounce of it, not a drip of it. He's pure, radiant goodness. This is our God's nature. And the lights highlight that. You can't look at the sun too long without it affecting your eyes negatively because it is so powerful in its brilliance. The sun is a massive hydrogen to helium reactor. The surface temperature of the sun is around 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And yet, did you know that the sun has dark spots? Many of us know that from school, not from observation. Well, the sun is actually not one of the hottest stars. It's considered a yellow star, which is about twice as hot as cooler stars called red stars, but it's only about a quarter of the temperature of the much hotter blue stars. Blue stars on their surface can exceed 40,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Like Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians, he said, even stars differ in glory from one to the next, right? When you see the light of the sun, which is incredible in Northeast Ohio, whenever we see it, it's a great gift, you should always think God is brighter, God is purer, God is more radiant in his goodness than that brilliant light. He's the father of that light. He's the father of lights. Father of all of them. Stuart Burgess said, I think very appropriately, when we consider the brightness of the sun, we can be reminded that God's brightness is even more brilliant. When we consider the beauty of the colors and patterns in the universe, we can be reminded that God is even more beautiful. The sun and stars show that God is a glorious God who's worthy of our praise. Hmm. So, when we look up at the lights, we should be reminded of God's mighty power as creator, of his sovereignty, of his pure goodness. 
And we should be reminded of his immutability. James describes God as the one with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's contrasting the father of lights with the lights, with our experience of them. The lights may change, but our God doesn't. The seasons may change. The sunlight on earth may change. The weather may change, but our God doesn't. With him, there is no change. This quality is essential to God's nature. As Christians have affirmed for thousands of years, I'm going to articulate it in the Westminster Confession, which is about 400 years old. The Westminster Assembly confessed in their catechism that God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In other words, every one of those things, his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his goodness, his truth, every one of those things is unchanging. That means that our God can fully be relied on. Every word he's spoken can be relied on because he doesn't change. He doesn't ever do like me and say, oh, there's a better way I could have said that. Never. When God speaks, he speaks with unchanging truth. And when God is faithful to what he's spoken, he's faithful with unchanging faithfulness. God doesn't get gooder to you tomorrow than he is today. He can't get gooder to you tomorrow than he is today. He's good. He's unchanging in his goodness yesterday, today, and forever. This is our God. Every time we look up at the lights and we think those are constant but changing, we should think our God is constant and never changing. That's our God. Fifth, God's inscrutability. His immutability, his inscrutability. This is a good word that our culture has largely lost that we need to regain. If something is inscrutable, it means it's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's beyond our ability to fully understand. That's a pretty accurate depiction or description, a word that describes the lights in the heavens, right? We can't begin to fathom the size of our universe. We can't fathom the number of stars in our galaxy, like a hundred billion. Have no comprehension of just how big that number is, let alone all the stars in the universe. One engineer said, if you counted a million stars a second, you'd still be counting a million years from now. Can you fathom that? Our inability to look at the heavens and even count the stars should humble us. It should lead us to trust God. Isn't that exactly what it did for Abraham, the father of faith? God said, Abraham, come out here. Let me show you something. Look up and see if you can count the stars. And the scripture in one of the most famous statements, Genesis 15, 6, says, and Abraham believed God. The stars should humble us. We can't count them. 
should humble us and lead us to trust God, especially when we are going through hardships in life that we don't understand. It's really helpful to consider our inability to control the lights. We have no ability to control the lights. We have no ability to count them, and it should lead us to humble ourselves before God. It should lead us like Job. You remember the end of Job? God actually confronts Job with Orion and the Pleiades and the bear, these constellations, and he says, do you lead these constellations out every night? And Job answers in Job 42, verse 3. He says, God, I'm sorry. I've been accusing you doing wrong in things that I couldn't possibly fathom. That's what many of us need to do. We should look at our trials and we should say, God, I'm sorry for blaming you. God, you are doing things beyond what I can fathom. Things, like Job said, that are too wonderful for me. We should acknowledge the inscrutability of God. We are not going to fully understand our God. Ever. We should be humbled when we look at the lights. I want to pause here just before I get to the sixth and close us. I want to pause here and just give a little illustration because I think it's helpful for us to remember that we're not the only ones going through trials. We're not the only ones who've experienced hardships in life that make no sense. And in fact, when we look out across history, our trials actually are some of the best. Like, If there's any point in history where you say, boy, I'd like to live with as few trials and as comfortable a life as I can, you'd probably pick around this day and around this time, this this place. We have it remarkably good in history. I just want to tell you about the man who's called the father of astronomy. Johannes Kepler is his name. He died at 59 years old in 1630. He's one of the greatest astronomers ever from Germany. If you take a class in astronomy, you're going to learn about his three laws of planetary motion. Kepler was a brilliant mathematician scientist. He was also a committed Christian. He grew up in a Lutheran family, uh, even though uh, he sided with the Calvinists, uh, which Lutherans did not like very much. On his deathbed, he simply declared his only refuge and consolation lay in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was his only hope in life and death. But his life was far from easy, far from glamorous. We think of him as the father of modern astronomy. Wow! No, his life was really hard. I want to tell you just about four challenging facets. The first is, he grew up in a dysfunctional home. His parents didn't get along. They were often out of the home. His father, Heinrich, worked for the military and was cruel He was an immoral man, and he eventually left his wife and family. Johannes was actually raised mostly by his grandmother, and as a child, he himself dealt with severe sickness, almost died at the age of four of smallpox. Throughout his childhood, he had to maintain a very strict diet because of his weakness. He grew up in a dysfunctional home. He didn't have a good childhood. Secondly, his early adulthood was really hard. Even though he was studying to be a minister, he was a brilliant man, a mathematics teacher in the area died, and because he had done so well in his mathematics classes, they asked him to fill in the position. So he accepted it, but the job didn't pay well. 
in his early 20s, he met and married a woman named Barbara, and they would, in the early years of their marriage, lose both their first two children to cerebral meningitis. That was the first two years of their marriage. They would go on to lose another of three children that would be born to them. Only two of their children would survive into adulthood. Third, he faced intense persecution. It was in his mid-twenties, his mid-twenties, that Ferdinand of Habsburg became a ruler in Germany. He was a Roman Catholic ruler, and he came down hard on the Protestants. In fact, he shut down the school in which Kepler was teaching, and most Protestants in the area actually renounced their Protestantism and confessed Catholicism in order that their property wouldn't be confiscated from them. Not Kepler. He was in his mid-twenties, and he was one of 61 individuals in the local area who refused to recant his Protestant faith and was forced to relocate. He relocated to Prague, and in the providence of God, he worked under the world's leading astronomer, a man named Tycho Brahe. Third, Kepler's trials never let up. His life in Prague, because of the religious freedom there, was considerably better than in Germany, but there his boss didn't pay him consistently. This would continue all the way through the end of his life. Through basically the last 30 years of his life, he'd be underpaid. By the time he died, he was owed almost three years of pay. Further, there in Prague, the Lord took the life of his six-year-old son, Friedrich, with smallpox, and after 17 years of marriage, the Lord took his wife, Barbara, of spotted typhus that went viral in the city that year. It's around 1611. At this point, Kepler was 40 years old. The last years of his life were both better and worse. Two years after Barbara's death, he married again a woman named Susanna. They were a great team. She loved his children. She had grown up an orphan but they would experience the death of several of their children together. One of Kepler's biographers describes how Kepler, in his mid-40s, coped with the death of one of their children. This is in his second marriage, his one-year-old daughter, Katarina. His biographer says, Johannes was so upset that he put aside his work on the astronomical tables that he was compiling because he couldn't concentrate on the complicated mathematics. Instead, he turned to the thoughts that brought him comfort. When he contemplated the harmony of the heavens, he felt solace and strength. He had been mulling this over for 20 years, looking for the order that he believed God had established when he created the world. 20 years earlier, when he was grieving over the death of his first daughter, he had found solace in his contemplations about harmony and creation. Kepler found peace in studying the stars. Within a few years of losing that child, Katharina, he published his third law of planetary motion in a landmark book called World Harmony. He published it in 1619 it would become the foundation for Isaac Newton's work on gravity. I mean, we're talking about landmark science, right? Do you find it remarkable that one of the greatest discoveries of astronomy was made by an astronomer who was contemplating creation 
as a way of coping with grief? God works in mysterious ways. In his preface to that monumental work, Kepler himself wrote, he's writing to God. He actually wrote his preface as a prayer. God, I've utilized all those powers of my mind which you've loaned me. I've shown people the glory of your works, as much of their unending wealth as my feeble intellect was able to grasp. I've utilized all those powers of my mind which you've loaned me. I've shown people the glory of your works, as much of their unending wealth as my feeble intellect was able to grasp. And then listen to this humility. He says, God, if I have let myself be led astray by the astounding beauty of your work and I have become personally audacious, or if I've found pleasure in my own fame because of the successful progress of my work, all of which is destined for your fame, forgive me in your kindness and mercy. God, I exist for you. It was right in the middle of hardships that Kepler kept being overwhelmed by the inscrutable glory of God revealed in the stars. I think it's really, really helpful for us to remember that in our hardships, there's incredible solace to be found in contemplating the order of creation. It's beyond our ability to fathom. Finally, when we look at the sun, moon, and stars, we should be reminded of God's personal love and care. Notice the connection between verses 17 and 18. If you have your Bible open to James 1, the Father of lights caused you to be born again. If you're a follower of Jesus, like James's audience was. He caused you to be born into God's family through the gospel. The gospel message is the message that God the Father gave his Son to live in your place and then die the death you deserved, then rise again and ascend to heaven, promising to return again to reign on this planet. God did all of that in order to reconcile you to himself and, in fact, in order to fix all that's broken in creation. That's the good news, that this creation has a redeemer, that you personally can have a redeemer. That's the word of truth. If you believe the truth and you commit your life to Jesus, then the Father of lights, the creator of the stars, the maintainer of the stars, the leader of the stars, he's your Father. Yours. He's caused you to be born into his family. You're his. The one who knows each star by name? Your father? Is that enough for you going into the new year? The one who created the stars knows your name, cares about you, has made you part of his family, and he's never going to let you go. He's your protector. He's your provider. He's your home. God's yours. It's incredible. If you've not submitted your life to Jesus, then the Father of lights is not your Father. And I urge you to turn from being your own authority.
If you have turned to Jesus, then I urge you to look to the Father of lights. Look to the Father of lights. If your heart right now is really hardened because of so many frustrations and stresses that you're bringing into the new year with you, I urge you to remember that following Jesus has always been hard. It was hard for the people James was writing to. It was hard for Kepler. It's hard for us today. Following Jesus is hard. But you must enter every hardship trusting the Father of lights. He is pure in goodness, immense in greatness, perfect in his sovereignty, unchanging in his love and faithfulness. Trust the Father of lights no matter what's going on in your life. So I say again the main point. If you are suspicious of God, if you're thinking that he may be cruel, then you need to look up. Look up at the sun, moon, and stars. And remember that the universe has an almighty creator. That he is sovereign over all. He is unchanging in pure goodness. He is utterly beyond your ability to comprehend. And he is your father through the gospel that you've accepted. Let these truths anchor you as you launch into the new year. Father, please help us to go into the new year trusting you no matter where we are, no matter what happens. You are the Father of lights. Help us never, Lord, to accuse you of being cruel, Help us never, Lord, to accuse you of being bad or malicious. You are the Father of lights. Humble us, Lord, with this accurate understanding of who you are. For Jesus' glory and for our good, I pray. Amen.